It's the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmy. Thanks for joining me. This week's guest is David White. David has a PhD in cell biology from the University of Edinburgh, Scotland, which I'm sorry, but I have to say it that way. Uh, In addition to being the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Regenerative Agriculture. David is also the director of the Ventura Land Trust's Once Upon a Watershed education program, which is active at 11 schools in the Ventura River watershed. He is also the founder of Regenerative Designs Ojai and brews actively aerated compost teas for home gardeners, small farms, and landscapers in the area. David, I'm delighted to catch up with you today. It's been a long time. Yeah, thanks for the invite, and so nice to see you and to be with you on your Garden Nerd podcast. So, <laughs> pleasure for me to reconnect. Yeah, well, we know each other. We met, actually, uh, when you hosted Dr. Elaine Ingham's Soil Food Web five-day intensive that I attended back in 2015, which was a mind-blowing experience, and I think everyone should take it when they get a chance. Um, but I want to know, what brought you to compost, compost tea, and soil biology? Okay, well, my dad's family were farmers in the northeast of Scotland, and my dad had a fairly extensive home garden where we, which we ate out of. And in, in the northeast of Scotland, there was a lot of potatoes, and we had strawberries. And we had, that was, I, we had some parsley, I remember that, turnips, which over here are rutabagas. Well, we have turnips too, but I guess that's a Swede. They're yeah, right, over, Swedes. Over that's what you call them. Yes. So, uh, and and that's that's pretty much what I remember from the garden there. But when I came over to Southern California, it was the first place I visited in America was Ojai in 1985, and I connected with a fellow Scot here who actually is an organic gardener, and I I was amazed by the. Uh, amount and variety of foods that could be grown here. And so I got into um, organic gardening and small-scale kind of truck farming just uh, as an interest and to support. And actually, I did some work in that when I first came over to, moved over to Ojai. And my background is in uh, biology. As you said, I've, I've got a degree in, in cell biology. So I'm I'm very interested in biology. And uh, uh, on the way to you know, exploring composts. I took my permaculture design course in, in 1997, fortunately with Bill Mollison. And that wow. brought a whole, a whole lot of things together. And I think that there was probably an emphasis on, on organics and composts in that. But really, the working with uh, Dr. Elaine Ingham was the thing that, that crystallized everything. And she's the queen of the soil. And I, I've been fortunate to take classes from her and then host her to give those classes, uh, I think a total of five times in Ojai. And so the importance of, of growing plants biologically has been emphasized through that journey. And, and really the, the role of compost and compost tea in, in creating biologically diverse soils is, is where I'm at in terms of its importance. Yeah, it is pretty much the foundation of a good of a good garden and a good orchard and a good everything ecosystem, isn't it? Yep, yep, yep. Soil, soils are key, and and it's interesting when we when we look at soils that we it's very hard to to separate soils and plants. And really, you know, the best way to feed soils is with plants because they're 
pumping carbohydrates into the soils, you know, all the time. And, and so the soil and plant connection that, that interface is in the, you know, the rhizosphere, that, that beautiful zone that's just outside of the roots and where the root exudates are coming out and where the soil biology congregates. So that's, um, that's where it all happens. And, because of my my background with uh, microscopy, that's the enjoyment I get out of it is is looking at the charismatic microfauna that inhabit the rhizosphere. Yeah, and it's it's beautiful to see it in action. You have some great photos of you know like I have a photo from my time during that workshop where we found a nematode, and I was so excited <laughs> to see a nematode crawling on the on that slide. It was great. It, it, can, it can be really a mind blower for people to see in one drop of a diluted soil preparation how much diverse life there is there, particularly if their soil and their compost is healthy. And, and there, yeah, there can just be an incredible soil food web that's active and that's, they're, they're eating, they're excreting, they're dying, they're reproducing, and they're all tiny and they're doing this all the time. And that's the, the workforce that I, I want to employ in, in my gardens. Yes. And we'll, we're going to dive a little further into that in a moment. But I wanted to ask you about where you are for our listeners. When we were planning this interview, you suddenly had to move. Something happened. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to know where you're moving to and what kind of garden you plan to have there or where have you been uh, by comparison? Let us know. Okay. So I, I've been very fortunate to live in the Ojai Valley in, in Southern California. As I say, the first place I, I visited. And according to the USDA, it is hardiness zone 9A. And so we get uh, hot summers. We do get frosts here. The, the primary um, agricultural crops that are growing here right now, uh, it's citrus and avocados. We do get some frost, so they have wind machines to move cold air around uh, when that happens, because when the frosts come, that tends to be when the fruit uh, is on the, the oranges or, are in fruit. So we want to move things, move air around and not have it freeze. And then at the other end of the spectrum, uh, a couple of years ago, well, we had an incredible fire, the Thomas fire. And then right after that, we had that summer, we had extreme hot weather. I remember it was 100 degrees at nine in the morning and it hit 115 and the avocado crop got hammered by that. It all, they dropped all their fruit. There was a lot of dieback, except under some areas where we had overstory nitrogen fixing trees in those orchards. So we did, we did learn a, a little bit from that, that those are the, the extremes. I think in, in 1980, no, 1991 or 92, it got down to 18 degrees. And again, the avocados died back because of that. But those are the, the extremes that I've seen. We te Ventura County, which is where Ojai is, has very flashy rain events. So we do tend to get, you know, our rain comes in, in fast in large amounts. So rainwater capture can be really important, mulching and, you know, slowing spread and sinking, those kind of strategies to recharge groundwater are really important. Right. And you have been living on a beautiful patch of land that is up against a forest, right? 
Yeah, I, I am. Uh, currently, I've lived and for the last 20 years, I've lived on a citrus ranch. It has citrus and avocados, and it opens onto National Forest, the Los Padres Nas- National Forest. So I can actually hike out my front door and go on forever into the Los Padres Forest, into the next um, watershed. The Santa Clara watershed is one of the tributaries, the Cespi which is a, a marvelous wild river. In fact, I think it's the last undammed river in Southern California mm. and uh, a refuge for Southern California steelhead. Um, so we, we had, I worked with a nonprofit, Keep the Sespe Wild, that had that federally protected as a wild and scenic river in 1996. Excellent. So yeah, there, there's a lot of wilderness here. We have had bears on our front doorstep, that's for <laughs> sure. <laughs> But then I, I, we do have to move. I don't own this place. I'm not sure what, with real estate prices in Ojai, 80 acres in the East End would be worth quite a bit. Um, I've been fortunate to live here, but the, I think COVID has actually made it so that the, the landlords want to move here because it's a retreat for them. And they're, they're certainly a, a, at risk. So we're going to be uh, downsizing a much smaller property, but I really have... Uh, a lot of connections with community gardens and school gardens in particular. So um, I'm looking forward to, I'm planning an orchard uh, install at a a, a public elementary school as we speak. Fantastic. All right. So let's dive into the Center for Regenerative Agriculture. What is that all about? So the regenerative agriculture uh, I, th- I think a, a good way to look at it is that it's increasing soil carbon content. And there, there is really a, a movement to, uh, the, like the Healthy Soils Program, is trying to encourage farmers to use techniques that increase soil carbon content. And, and really the big picture for me about that is that it's uh, an, a nature-based climate solution in that you're taking carbon out of the atmosphere and fixing it into the ground. And it's plants that are doing that. And so that the, the big picture is, yeah, increasing soil carbon content. Another definition I liked of just of the term regenerative is, is that we're improving the resources we work with. So in, instead of depleting soil, we're building soil. And uh, instead of, of using pesticides, uh, it, herbicides, chemical fertilizers, it tends to be based on um, organic approaches. And and when we look at the use of external inputs for farmers, particularly the costs associated with fertilizers, chemical foods, um, if you can generate those on site and uh, not have to pay for them, and then they're biological, so you're building soil and you're, you're avoiding all the problems associated with chemical ag and chemical fertilizers, then it's, it's like bonus, bonus, bonus. Right. And so what are some of the practices that you implement to resurrect dead soil? Because I imagine with all that heat out there, your soil gets pretty baked. So a key thing is to cover soil. And it's interesting to look back wherever you are and imagine what the place that you are trying to garden or farm in was like 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago. And here, a thousand years ago, the the native Chumash were here, and there was many more oak trees here. This was oak woodland. And so when you've, uh, on a hot day, you go into the shade of a tree, and the oaks shaded the soil and provided habitats. So really covering soil, we could be doing that with straw or wood chips 
or plants. It could be ground cover. So no-till is a, a, a technique that you're, you're keeping your soil covered. You're not wanting to um, expose bare soil. Um, so that, that's one of the uh, basic techniques. Using animals in the landscape is a key one, too, and integrating animals in a, in a, a way that works. So uh, moving pasture rotation, moving animals through uh, orchards, for instance, we have uh, ducks in our orchard. We tried geese. They weren't so keen on weeding the wheat, the grasses that we wanted removed. These are mean um, too. So, so yeah. So having animals in, in the landscape, and, and when I look at that in the small scale, I think of the animals that I've got in my compost, and and really that your your protozoa, your nematodes, your earthworms, those guys are working for you twenty four seven in your landscape. So. So covering the soil, cover crops are really important. Diversity in plants is important rather than having a, a monoculture. And, and using composts and compost teas, I really promote that. We look at the soil, we build composts, and we add those uh, mainly by making actively aerated compost teas. So you're increasing the soil biology. So yeah, no-till, covering the soil, using compost, compost tea, the animals and rotational pasture. There's a lot of information about this. There's uh, Gabe Brown is a, a great YouTube resource on the techniques of regenerative ag. And he's up in, in North Dakota, which is significantly different from the areas here. But he's, he's a great proponent of uh, the techniques of regenerative ag for um, large farmers. And, and he, he really is making the financial points that you're reducing your external inputs and your dependence on uh, chemical inputs in particular, and you're increasing your soil health and reducing the needs that you have around about that for yeah, pesticides, herbicides, that kind of thing. Right. And I've seen Alan Savory speak about his whole process of rotational grazing and, and yes. re, uh, reversing desertification. So that's something I'll, I'll put in the blog post so that goes along with this so people can look more into that as well. Do you have any favorite cover crops that you like to grow or blends of cover crops that you like to grow? Um, so the cover crop that I, I use a seed mix that I get from Island Seed and Feed in Isla Vista. And a shout out to, to those guys because they provide uh, tremendous service and they provide the soil foods that I use, which is a landscape mix, which is a mix of fish, feather, kelp, soy, and alfalfa. But their, their cover crop uh, seed mix has bell beans, I think it is, and uh, vetch, and you, uh, fava beans are one of my favorites for the small garden. But, you know, peas, beans, vetch, all alfalfa, they, these are, you know, clovers. The more, and I think if you watch Gabe Brown, he, he stresses experiments that have shown that what you want is a diversity of cover crops. You don't want to just use one because they, they synergize. So if you can get 10 different things as a cover crop, then you're, you're more likely for that to survive, for instance, a, a drought situation. And, and in the cover crops, what I really want to include is support for beneficials. And, and this is not just pollinator support, but it's, it's support for predator insects, support for spiders. And, and so we, what I would like to see is some umbiliferi in there, you know, and, and, you know, maybe that could be something you could eat too. Cilantro is a fairly easy one to grow around here. 
and uh, yeah, both to seed so quickly. Yes, <laughs> you get the benefit yeah. of it and, right away. And uh, yarrow, for instance, you know. So, so those are those are some of the things that I would include in a in a um, cover crop mix. But you really, the I think a key thing is to try as many different species. And if you've got hard soil, then you're putting in your daikon, and and so the radishes are breaking it up. And and then to look at what's doing well around there. And we often this term weeds, I think, is is really to be avoided. And, and if you've got a weed problem, usually that means you have a seed shortage. But it is important to look at actually what's growing there. And in the orchard here, we, we have, I don't even know what, it's an aster, it's a, like a daisy that grows here. And the bees love it. We have uh, honeybee on the ranch and they come and feed on, on these um, flowering plants. But the weed abatement will go and cut them down and it's it's like really i i don't know that that's necessary so look at what's growing there and incorporate that if you can or recognize its its uh function yeah that's a good practice now i've tried to brew fungal dominant compost tea from i've tried to make my compost more fungal uh, by emphasizing uh-huh. more browns than greens. And that tends to, you know, carbon is in the, that's the fungal food. So I've been focusing on that, but it can be hard to do once you get to the tea part. Do you have any tricks for brewing fungal dominant compost tea? I, so the, the, the key thing is the quality of the compost. And you can't really make a tea, you can't make a tea better than the quality of your compost. So building the compost is the important thing. And what for a fungal uh, fungally dominated tea, which would be suitable for most perennial crops. Most perennials have a fungal association with their roots, a mycorrhizal association. So for those, I, I will definitely use wood chips as the carbon source in my compost. And where uh, to, to, to make that uh, a subtler choice, I would try and use native wood chips. So if I can get them from the oak tree trimmings around here, that would be an improvement. And then a further uh, improvement would be if if they were what we call ramial wood chips, which are from wood that's of a diameter of two and a half inches or less. And what happens is that you have a, a lot more of the compounds in there that actually are able to be digested by fungi. And there's a lot more active live cells in there than if you are taking trunks with solid wood in them. And those might be better for, for pathways, for instance. So ramial wood chips. And the, if you want to find out more about that, I'm just going to get the reference for sure. that. This guy, uh, Michael Phillips, is a great uh, source of information on that. And he's got two books. One is The Holistic Orchard, Tree Fruits and Berries, The Biological Way. And the other one is Mycorrhizal Planet, Regenerative Practices for the Farm, Garden, Orchard, Forest, and Landscape. And that has more description of of the importance of ramial wood chips, which is to do with, you know, small diameter wood. So if you can get, for instance, if you have people trimming for the power lines and you can get the wood chips from that, that tends to be, uh, in our area, a pretty good source free source of mulch to build a fungally dominated compost out of. And then the the foods that I will use to support that are, they're simple enough. We, we use 
I always use um, humic acid right. is is a, a basic that I always put in, in everything. And that's the complex macromolecules that you get in a finished compost. And you can actually make your own humate just by taking finished compost and, and gently dribbling water through it. And you should get something that comes out of it that is the color of, you know, 70% dark chocolate would be ideal. But the foods that I'll use in particular is kelp and whole fish, not fish emulsion, but whole fish. And if you really are into it, you can take your, if you, if you have fish uh, remnants, fish heads and guts and tails and things, and you put them in a blender, then you've got whole fish, but you can also buy it. And okay. I, I buy whole fish from Peaceful Valley Far- Farm Supply, groworganic.com. I love uh, Peaceful Valley Farm and Garden Supply, by the way. I'm a big fan of theirs. <laughs> yeah. And, and so uh, humate, kelp, and uh, whole fish are the foods that I will use. And I do have some clients that I can brew it vegan so that there's no fish in it. And also, if you have a plant that you, for instance, don't want to have it smell slightly fishy, if you're doing a foliar application, then you leave out the fish because it is quite uh, olorific. It is. And that's why I, I'm vegetarian, but not vegan, but I do try and brew a vegan tea. I, I'm using Soil Revive from Earthfort. Do you have something? Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem with that is that it becomes hard as a rock if you don't use it frequently. Have you yeah. come up with a solution for that by any chance? I, I, I haven't. I mean, I, I've seen that product and I think it sometimes I have, uh, I have used it, but I, I just find that it actually kelp is... Sufficient. Kelp and humate works fine for me. And uh, when I look at it under the microscope, the, the, again, the quality of the compost is, is important. But what I see is a lot of fungal hyphae. Okay. Um, Good and, you know, when you think about the regenerative aspect of using kelp, there's a lot of interest in kelp farming because it is such a rapidly glo- growing plant. It's a glowing plant, too. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it is... Uh, something that can grow, what, three feet in a day. And so it's sequestering carbon in its own right and then providing you with a, a food source. And interestingly, it was a tradition, traditional food used in Scotland, in my home country, to, to feed the, the gardens and farms there. They drag the kelp up onto the, the foreshore and, uh, and then take it into their, the farms. So. I did not know that about Scotland. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And you just hose it down to get all the soak it to get all the. No need out. to hose it down in Scotland. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's Scotland. It rains all the time. Yeah, yeah. And you no. know, and I, I have, I've have friends here who have collected kelp and used it in their gardens, and I, I think that the kind of micronutrient aspect of the salts and marine minerals that are present enhance soils. I mean, if you had. Uh, don't pour salt on your on your soil, which is a good reason not to use most chemical fertilizers. Exactly. Uh, but uh, but I don't think that that kelp is necessarily going to introduce super high levels, especially the dilution that I'm using it, which is like a quarter cup per thirty gallons. Okay, right. You have that thirty gallon brewer. I'm envious of that. I have. I've moved up from a five gallon to an eight gallon, but I'm still ah, like yeah. stretching it. <laughs> My standard, my standard brew that I do is is thirty gallons for landscapers. And and as I was saying earlier, that to, to you that 
landscapers are such an important connector for regenerative techniques into urban landscapes. And I think that COVID has provided a focus for that in that people are more interested in growing food in their own properties. And, you know, we, we did have a similar situation in the Second World War where we had all those victory gardens that were producing 40% of our, of our veggies in how many gardens was it? 20 million home gardens. Yep. And so the home gardener is not so interested in making money out of their landscape. They just want to grow food and they tend to want to do it in ways that don't use poisons. And so landscapers who are using regenerative techniques, I think, are, are a key way for us to to get regenerative techniques used more widely. And so when I, I do brew for landscapers and my standard brew is, is 30 gallons, it just happens to be six, five gallon buckets. I have a brewer, actually my favorite brewer is an 80 gallon cone tank. Mm-hmm. And I can brew 30, actually I usually brew about 45 gallons in that because there's always somebody who wants five gallons on the side. And I can brew at what I call a double batch, which is 60 gallons, but I usually brew in that instance about 70, 75. And that gets two big tea bags in there and double the foods and all of that. Um, yeah, I'm always experimenting with brewers and some of the some of the videos show different on the CRA's websites show us using different uh, types of brewers from the five gallon to well we i don't know if we we have a got brewer that's in a one of those ibc totes you know it's a 235 gallon brewer yeah um but it's actually we found just it's it's too big (laughs) (laughs) it's a lot of composting if you have 100 and and the minimum brew it makes is about 150 175 gallons that's a lot of compost tea you know so yeah you're looking for places to put it at that point Community Uh, gardens get a lot of compost tea when we brew with that one. Yeah. Well, it is tip time. What is one tip you'd like to share with the Garden Nerd audience? Okay, so I was thinking about this, and I love that you have this question. And I was thinking, well, you know, it could be cover the soil. That's very important. And then what are we going to cover the soil with? Well, it's going to be plants. And then when I was thinking, uh, I was so privileged to take the permaculture design course from Bill Mollison, and one of his lines was maximize floristics. And just growing more flowers is something that everybody appreciates flowers, especially beneficial insects and spiders. And so our arthropod population will love you for that. And one of my favorite gardens is, is Lotus Land in Montecito, and it's a often ranked one of the 10 best gardens in the world. And my favorite garden there is their insectary garden. And it's got maximal floristics. So that's my tip. That is a great tip. And I I try to encourage people to plant their perimeter. If they have raised beds, plant the perimeter of the garden around it in the pathways with things that flower and attract bugs and good bugs to the garden and actually are trap crops to keep the bad bugs away like nasturtiums and alyssum, which is part of the umbelliferae family you were talking about earlier. And all of the, all the umbels, the cilantro, the parsley, the uh, celery that goes to seed fennel, blah, which I hate fennel by the way, <laughs> but I still like to grow umbels that help, you know, bring those bugs to the garden. Do you have any other favorite flowers that you like to include in your garden? Well, you know, they, they do, say friends don't let friends plant annuals yeah <laughs> and, and annuals are a lot of work and it is it's harder to grow annual veggies uh in a regenerative way because of of the uh tilling that often accompanies that although there are ways that you can do it without excessive tilling however 
if I was to plant annuals, I would like to plant things that sowed themselves. And around here, arugula is probably my favorite because it's, it's such a willing plant to grow. And when it, it goes to flower, the flowers are delicious and they're cruciferi and they support a lot of, you know, beneficials. And then if I'm planting another uh, annual with that, I, a calendula is so simple and uh, just a, a joyful plant and so willing to share. And then to make a triumvirate of edible perennialized annuals, chard is is super easy to grow and we found out that rabbits quite like chard and rabbits are nutrient dense food you know so yeah their poop is the best best fertilizer they I, are amazing I, I have got we've got some rabbits and we do incorporate some of that into our uh, compost program you know nice well those are good those are good plants to list i particularly love i have planted calendula i think once you know, 11 years Definitely ago when me. I, when I moved in here and it's still, it volunteers every year. And right. yeah, it's great. It's fun. I like that lazy gardening, uh, motif. Yeah. Yeah. What, what I like that term. What is it? Uh, stun gardening. You know that one? No stun gardening. Tell me more. Sheer, total, utter neglect. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, and that's, you know, often the type of gardening that happens in areas. If you, but you, you all you need to do is, is save some seeds and throw them out there. And if you had, you know, chard and calendula and arugula and around here with winter rains, then yeah, you, you can, you can have an edible crop out of that with not very much work. Not very much effort at all. Well, thank you so much for that expert tip, David. And thanks for being a guest on the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast. My pleasure, Christy. Thanks so much for the invite. How do people find you? The nonprofit Center for Regenerative Agriculture has a website, ohicra.org. Ohi spelled O J A I. So ohicra.org. And if you're interested in watershed education, which really for me is about connecting kids to nature, we run that uh, onceuponawatershed.org. Um, I do have my business, rdohi.com. And with with one of those, you can probably get a hold of me. Right. Yes. And there are a couple of videos that have your phone number in the background on the, on the screen. So people can find you no matter what. Uh, great. And do you have any social media or anything like that you'd like to share? You, you know, I, I really am not as active on social media as many people might want to be. We do. The nonprofits do have facebook and instagram pages so if you look for center for regenerative agriculture some of our staff maintain those our youtube channel is probably the most informative so if you looked up center for regenerative agriculture on youtube then there's some videos based on uh, making compost tea and doing some microscopy uh, that might be helpful if you're trying to do that kind of work Great. Important work indeed. Important work indeed. It's it's about reversing climate change, really. That's what this is about. Nature-based climate solutions. Yay. All right, garden nerds, you'll find links to the Center for Regenerative Agriculture and Ojai Regenerative Design at gardennerd.com this week. We'll also share a video that reiterates what you've heard here and goes deeper. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at Garden Nerd 
GardenerDirectorGardenerNerd.com and show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff that we do on Garden Nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under GardenNerd1, on Facebook as GardenNerd.com, and of course, our Garden Nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening!